This is the Return to Order Moment with Edwin Benson. Bringing you insights, analysis, and information for a culture in crisis. God's architecture feeds the soul. The glory of the Gothic. If you asked anybody during the medieval period about Gothic architecture, they would not know what you were talking about. The word Gothic developed later, and it was not intended to be a compliment. For centuries, it was common for academics to look upon anything medieval with disdain. This attitude prevailed despite the fact that Europe was filled with monumental cathedrals and numberless village churches, all beautiful in their various ways. In a very real sense, the rejection of the medieval architecture was a way of rejecting God. It is all but impossible to go into a fine Gothic church, either the genuine articles in Europe or the 19th century ones in the United States, and not think of God. The design literally lifts the eye from the things of this world up to God and heaven. The founder of the international TFP movement, Professor Plinio Correa de Oliveira, discusses the origins of Gothic architecture in his essay, A Monument Raised from a Ruin, An Institution from a Custom. This article was originally published in Catalissimo in July 1963. It has been translated and adapted without the author's revision. This essay begins with a long quotation from Donoso Cortez, whose importance will be spelled out later. Quote, Consider the diversity of the Middle Ages. On one hand, there is the raising of cities, the fall of empires, the struggle between races, the confusion of peoples, violence and lamentations. There is corruption, barbarianism, institutions fall and institutions rise, men disperse and make nations, whole peoples are led to unknown destinations, and yet still, enough light remains to know that everything is out of place and there is no place for anything. Europe is chaos itself. But amid this chaos, something stands. It is the immaculate spouse of our Lord. And one great success never before seen by mankind prevails. It is a second creation worked by the church. During the Middle Ages, only one thing seems astounding to me, and that is this second creation. And only one thing seems adorable to me, and that is the church. In order to work this great prodigy, God called these obscure times, eternally infamous both for the explosion of all brutal forces and the manifestation of human impotence. Nothing exalts the divine majesty and grandeur more than to have worked in this world while no one acted, where men, peoples, and races struggled in confusion. On two solemn occasions, God willed to show that corruption is sterile and only virginity is fertile. God our Lord willed to be born of Mary, and he desired to espouse himself to the Holy Church, Thus was the church the mother of nations, just as Mary was his mother. Then that immaculate virgin, his church, sharing the solicitude of her divine spouse to do good, lifted the spirits of the fallen and moderated the impetus of the violent, giving to some a taste of the bread of the strong and to others the bread of the meek 
those fierce children of the north who had humiliated and mocked Roman majesty, fell conquered by love at the feet of this defenseless virgin. And for many centuries, the whole world watched in astonishment and wonder as the church renewed the prodigy of Daniel, who suffered no harm in the lion's den. After having lovingly soothed these great wraths and after having calmed those furious tempests with her gaze alone, the church raised a monument from a ruin, an institution from a custom, a principle from an event, a law from an experience. To say it in a word, order from chaos, harmony from confusion. Undoubtedly, all the instruments used for her creation, like chaos itself, were taken from that chaos. Hers was only the enlivening and creating force. There was an embryonic form in that chaos, bereft of everything, from which would be born and live the church who possessed the being and the life. She brought everything into being and everything came alive when the world lent an attentive ear to her loving words and fixed its gaze on her resplendent beauty. No, men had not seen anything like it because they had not seen the first creation. Neither will they see it again, for there will not be three creations. One might say that God... Regretting that he had not made man a witness of the first, allowed his church a second creation just so that man could behold it. With their elevated topics, forceful thought, and distinguished language, the great debate so characteristic of the 19th century usually retained something of the nobility of European society before the French Revolution. Thus they contrast with our century where man conforms to everything, provided it has no economic interest, and where today's rare elevated debates are not of interest to a public hypnotized by movies and sports. Today we bring an echo of those high, fulgent intellectual tournaments to the attention of our readers. Albert de Broglie, a liberal Catholic, published an article in the Revue des Deux Mondes, November 1st, 1852, claiming that the enthusiasm for the Middle Ages of certain Catholic writers was excessive. One of the targeted personalities, the celebrated Spanish thinker Donoso Cortés, Marquis of Valdegamas, wrote a reply to de Broglie. Although the author never sent it to the Revue des Deux Mondes, It was later published in his complete works. The text quoted above is an excerpt from that reply and is a brief and brilliant analysis of the history of the Middle Ages from a theological point of view. It illustrated the elevated tone of the debate and at the same time makes a definitive reply to liberals who are disturbed at finding so much enthusiasm for that period of history among Catholics. With masterly precision, he shows the difference between what was barbaric, weak, and chaotic in that period and the order, strength, and triumphal progress of Christian civilization. Thus, Donoso Cortes annihilates the accusation espoused by so many Catholics in his time and today who admire those centuries of faith with neither discernment nor restrictions. At the same time, 
He focuses with admirable clarity on those points that the Middle Ages deserves unrestricted enthusiasm. Primarily, the vivifying and ordering action of the church and the consequent life and order she gave to institutions, laws, and customs. The Gothic style was born of a society that had been made from the decaying ruins of a Roman world, mixed with elements of barbarianism, and assailed by furious tempests. Brought about through the work of the church, which knew how to raise, quote, a monument from a ruin, an institution from a custom, a principle from an event, a law from an experience, to say it in a word, order from chaos, harmony from confusion, unquote. This admirable style was born from this unregenerated decay and barbarianism. This style, more than any other, is able to express the gravity, strength, and nobility of the Christian soul. One stage for the revival of Gothic architecture in the 19th century was England. For over 200 years after the disastrous reign of King Henry VIII, it was illegal for an Englishman to be Catholic. Those who retained their historic faith were hunted down and executed for treason against the king, the head of the new Church of England. In 1829, Parliament ended this persecution. Newly emancipated English Catholics celebrated by building new churches in a Gothic style used by their Catholic ancestors. Mr. Plinio Maria Salomeo describes the importance of these elements in his essay, How the Revival of Catholic Architecture in England Changed the Way People Prayed. In the good times when people had faith, churches were the most beautiful and elevated buildings in cities. Churches provided an environment conducive to prayer when people raised their minds to God. One example among thousands is how religious architecture marked Catholicism in 19th century England when Catholics were a minority. During the early centuries of Christianity, and especially the Middle Ages, the Catholic faith and architecture flourished in Britain to the point that it earned the epithet Island of Saints. In the 16th century, however, the lurid King Henry VIII broke with the true church to Mary Anne Boleyn. He issued the Act of Supremacy, declaring himself the, quote, new and supreme head of the church in England, unquote. This proclamation gave rise to the Anglican Church. As a result, the Catholic religion was banned and persecuted for almost two centuries. A 1701 decree forbade any quote-unquote papist to rise to the English throne. Even after the Kingdom of Great Britain was established in 1707, Catholics were still excluded from voting, running for Parliament, or exercising some professions. In 1778, the situation was mitigated with the so-called Papist Acts, which allowed Catholics to own private property, inherit land, and serve in the army. These concessions enraged many Anglicans, which revealed how deep anti-Catholic sentiment ran in the country. However, events outside the country changed this sentiment. During the French Revolution, thousands of French Catholic refugees settled in Britain. During the Napoleonic Wars, Britain was allied with Catholic nations, especially Spain, Portugal, and the Holy See. These developments gave new courage to the children of the true church. 
1829, Parliament passed the Emancipation Act, which granted Catholics civil rights almost equal to those of Protestants. Catholics could vote and hold public office. Although officially unrecognized, the Catholic Church already had a considerable number of faithful at the time of the Emancipation Act. Around 50,000 members came from the traditional Catholic families called refusers. A large influx of Irish Catholic immigrants later fed the Great Irish Potato Famine of 1845-49. to The number increased from 224,000 Catholics in 1841 to 419,000 in 1851. A third group of converts from the Anglican Church joined these two groups. These Catholics belonged to the Oxford Movement, which included French immigrants and the future Cardinals Newman and Manning, the second Archbishop of Westminster. In the Middle Ages, England constructed magnificent Gothic cathedrals, which still stand today as witnesses to the faith of those true Catholics. After the Act of 1829, there was a major revival of Catholic architecture. One exponential Catholic architect was Augustus Pugin, 1812-1852. His short and dynamic life transformed how English Catholics and Anglicans viewed ecclesiastical architecture. He inherited his father's skills of draftsman, decorator, and art critic, becoming a pioneer of the neo-Gothic style in England. His father was a Frenchman who fled the French Revolution and married a Protestant wife. She took little August to attend religious services at the Scottish Presbyterian Church. The boy never felt at ease and always expressed displeasure at the Scottish Church's cold and sterile forms. As soon as he felt free from the obstacles imposed by his mother, he ran into the arms of the Catholic Church, which attracted his imaginative mind with its pompous ceremonies. At age 23, Pugin converted to the Catholic Church. He wrote to a friend, quote, I can assure you that, after a close and more impartial investigation, I am convinced that the Roman Catholic Church is the only true one, and the only one in which the grand and sublime Gothic style of ecclesiastical architecture can be restored, unquote. In 1836, Pugin published his book, Contrasts, in which he defended medieval architecture's quote-unquote wonderful superiority over modern architecture. In this polemical book, he advocated a revival of medieval Gothic style and quote, a return to the faith and social structures of the Middle Ages, unquote. In 1839, he built his first Gothic church, St. Mary's, for the 16th Earl of Shrewsbury in Derby. He then constructed or designed many works, including four cathedrals. His designs can be seen in England, Ireland, and even Australia. This Catholic convert established himself as a decorator genius, always based on Gothic art. Westminster Palace, which houses the British Parliament and its iconic Big Ben clock tower, is his culminating work in the field and is still admired worldwide. In 1840, this renowned Catholic architect built his favorite church, St. Giles Cheadle. He said it was, quote, the first really good thing I did, unquote. In 
the indefatigable August Pugin died prematurely on September 14, 1852, at just 40 years of age, leaving several disciples. Over 100 years later, in the 1950s, church builders chose to design brutally modern churches, influenced by the emerging liturgical movement. Both Liverpool Cathedral and the Church of Our Lady of Fatima in Harlow were pre-Vatican II projects built with a circular shape. The modernist mentality fostered by the Council gave a tremendous boost to the so-called liturgical reforms. Thus, many Catholic architects started to build churches according to the new ideas. Consequently, those buildings lost their ability to attract even Catholics over time. With the drastic decrease in the number of the faithful, the construction of new churches in England practically stopped after 1975. The only contemporary Catholic architect catering to church design is Anthony Delore, who dedicates himself to restoring churches vandalized by modern priests in the council's wake. Today, empty churches reflect the widespread flight of the faithful. Thus, England, like everywhere else, is unlikely to see new church construction soon. A Catholic architecture tradition of more than 200 years has come to a drastic end. May Our Lady have mercy on Holy Church. The new church architecture that Mr. Salomeo described in his last essay infected the United States as well. Many beautiful churches were stripped of their Catholic elements, especially the high altars and statues. Beautiful murals were painted over. Unfortunately, some church buildings escaped that fate and retained the beauty envisioned by their designers. Mr. Edwin Benson discusses that process in his essay, The Architecture That Feeds the Soul. One of the delights of going to Holy Mass in a place which one has never before visited is the discovery of the church building itself. There is an inexpressible joy in walking into a traditionally decorated Catholic church for the first time. The Gothic architecture draws the eye heavenward. The stained glass fills the nave with a kind of unpredictable yet reassuring light. The colors are vivid and varied. The symbols of the faith are all around you. There are heroes of the faith, as the best artists in that area depicted them in glass, stone, wood, paint, and mosaic. The whole gives a marvelous sense of the richness of the faith. It is both obvious and mysterious. Its images are larger than life, but at the same time, one wonders exactly which saints are being shown, what the symbols mean, and why the people who sacrificed to build this building chose those particular saints and symbols. If you are fortunate and have the time to explore the building, you can often get some ideas about the people themselves. Small brass plates, panes of glass at the bottoms of the windows, stones carved with names. Certain nationalities often predominate, Irish, German, Polish, Italian, etc. It is not hard to imagine them huddled on the deck of a steamer landing in New York City like the photos seen in a documentary. How, you might think, did those poorly clad people ever manage to build anything so magnificent? If you are even more fortunate, a member of the parish might notice you and come over to guide you about. 
You might hear stories about a group of bricklayers or fresco painters who worked 10 hours a day and then came to the building site to donate their labor into the early hours of the morning. You might hear of a successful immigrant businessman, so bereft at the loss of the wife who helped him become successful, that he donated the St. Cecilia window in the choir loft with her name on it. Unfortunately, there is also the contrary experience, where you walk into a fine old church building and everything is beige. The altar is little more than a table, and you don't know in which direction to genuflect because you can't find the tabernacle. In downtown Louisville, Kentucky, stands the Cathedral of the Assumption. It is a fine red brick building, finished in 1852. As you climb the too many steps to get into the main body of the cathedral, it is easy to wonder what architectural delights may lay behind those large doors. A wonderfully friendly person hands you the bulletin. You walk in. This being a Gothic building, you look up and see a marvelous star-studded sea of blue between the intricate vaults. Then you look down, and all your reveries end. You are confronted with the baptistry. It is marble, and it is big. It has little Gothic detail, but it is too low, out of scale. Somehow, just wrong. The altar is marble, too, and had some Gothic elements, but you have to get a lot closer before you can see them. The wall behind the altar looks like it was lifted from a modern cemetery chapel with large unbroken slabs of marble. The chairs look like something ordered in bulk from an 80s office supply company. You just know that something else had to be here once upon a time. Sure enough, there was. This being the age of the Internet, a page devoted to the history of the cathedral is online. Most of the pictures are modern, but there is one rather grainy picture postcard from the early 20th century showing it as it used to be. You wonder, how could this vandalism have taken place? Maybe there was a horrible fire that destroyed that part of the building. Was there a flood that heavily damaged all of that irreplaceable decoration? No, this was not an act of God. It was an act of man. People who just could not understand the richness around them. At this point, I will step aside and let Steve Kaufman, a journalist for the Louisville Insider, take over. Quote, One tangible result of Vatican II, visible to all Louisvillians, and especially as Catholics, was a new look for the churches themselves. Communion rails, those barriers separating priest and congregation, were mostly removed so the worshippers could feel more involved. The high, formidable altars were lowered to make the priest feel more accessible and reoriented toward the congregation. The tabernacle was moved to the side, and the seating plan was changed from rigid and rectilinear to less formal, more social, circular, or semicircular arrangement. Quote, the call was for a full and active participation, says Sister Jean Zappa, Chapel Preservation Specialist for the Ursuline Sisters of Louisville, and the modern architecture was more about being warm and welcoming versus the enormity of space that makes those feel smaller in the presence of God. Unquote. The exterior architecture of the churches changed as well. 
solid stone fortresses with rigid classical forms and steeples reaching to the sky became more and more yesterday's churches. More modern buildings with flat or rounded roofs and ankled walls began to proliferate. Yes, who can deny the quote-unquote warm and welcoming quality of slabs of marble or the flat walls of unadorned brick that typifies so many churches built since the 60s? Lest this sound too dismissive, there is beauty to be found in Louisville's cathedral. It's just that everything that is beautiful is also old. A far more uplifting experience was Asheville, North Carolina's Basilica of St. Lawrence. The exterior is something that is difficult to imagine coming out of the Smoky Mountains. According to the Basilica's brochure, the architectural style is Spanish Renaissance. The exterior is full of detail and variation. Statues stand at the roof line, almost as sentries at watch on some medieval castle. These are soldiers of God's army, stationed to keep the enemy at bay. The real delight, though, comes when you enter. It is cool and a little dark. The actual entrance is small, but then you turn a little bit and walk a couple of steps, and you are greeted with the magnificence of the worship space. The whole space is one large oval dome set in tile. There is marvelous stained glass. There are statues half hidden in niches that you can't really see until you're standing right in front of them. As you walk in, your eye is drawn to the main altar surmounted by a life-size crucifix. Our Lady and St. John, the beloved disciple, looking on in a mixture of love and horror. Around our Lord are mosaics representing the company of saints. On the right and left of the altar are two side chapels. The one to the left contains a beautifully carved baptismal font. The baptisms that take place there are intimate family occasions with the blessed mother of us all and her angel attendants looking on. On the right side of the altar is the Blessed Sacrament Chapel, equally beautiful, a fitting place for our Lord to repose as the faithful come to adore Him. Some modern voices might cry out, How can you justify all of this opulence when the hungry are all around us? The answer is as simple as it is profound. We are all hungry, and it is a hunger of the soul. We are hungry for the true, the good, and the beautiful. Praise God for those who designed, built, and preserved those beautiful places in which our souls can be fed. This concludes God's Architecture Feeds the Soul, the Glory of the Gothic. Thank you so much for listening. Return to Order, of which this podcast is only a part, strives to be a source of light in a dark and disordered world. Your prayers are appreciated. If you have enjoyed this podcast, we ask you to subscribe and give us a five-star rating with the service through which you are listening to it. Increased subscriptions and high ratings mean that more people will be directed to the Return to Order moment when searching for a new podcast. So, by rating us, you can help Return to Order be more effective. In addition, subscribers gain access to all previous episodes of the Return to Order moment. We would also like to recommend the book which spells out our motivations behind our work. Mr. John Horvat's book, Return to Order, is available as a free download through our website, www.returntoorder.org, or in printed and recorded form through our bookstore. All rights are reserved. 
copyright 2021, by the American Society for the Defense of Tradition, Family, and Property, TFP.